This is Cinema Degeneration. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. We're not that different, Dick. I do not enjoy killing, but it's my job. Someone has to do it. Maybe. Me. The hobo with a shotgun. He didn't just eat their bodies. He ate their souls. And I joined in. I'm gonna sleep in your bloody carcasses tonight! I suggest aspirin for the headache. What headache? I'm surprised you don't have a grenade launcher. Couldn't get a permit. Because I cut off his legs. And his arms. And his head. And I'm gonna do the same to you. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. <laughs> Why would you want to kill yourself? Maybe I like the idea of choosing when I die instead of having somebody else choose for me. If someone offered you a good job, would you be interested? What kind of job are you talking about? We need someone to help us with our hunts out in the wilderness. Are you sure about this one? Oh, I'm sure. Has he got courage? Gentlemen, I would like you to meet our new hunting guide, Mason. Here's a toast to the hunters and a prayer for the hunted. <laughs> <laughs> the hunt begins now. Get out of here! Just let me get the door for you. Go, go, go! We're not really gonna hunt him, are we? He's nothing. He's less than nothing. Come on, Mason! I don't take any part in this. I want you! Thank you. Thank you. If you make it to civilization, you live. Thank If you don't, ah! maybe God will have mercy. Oh! Yeah! I think he's gone back to the cabin. None of them has ever done that before. Mr. Mason! What's that smell? Everybody out of the cabin! Ah! I like not being rare. Ah! Well done, bitch. Jack Mason knows he's going to die someday. Damn, I wish I'd never started smoking. But today, he's not in the mood. Uh, this is where it gets interesting. Never underestimate. Come on, Mason! A man who has nothing to lose. Rutger Hauer. Charles Dutton. Gary Busey. F. Murray Abraham. William McNamara and Ice-T. Surviving the Game. Bang! Directed by Ernest Dickerson. All righty, folks. Welcome to Cinema Degeneration and our new Appreciation Month. We are going to be commemorating and memory, remembering the late, great Rucker Hauer, who passed away in 2019. Uh, he was an actor from the Netherlands. He took the, the, that country by storm and also 
took the uh, the Hollywood system by storm by playing heavies amongst uh, many other hero type roles, but usually always would play a heavy. But uh, as, as to quote his uh, one of his movies, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. But then again, he he burned for 75 years. So that's a pretty impressive run by anybody's account. But this is the first episode of Rucker Hauer Appreciation Month, and we are going to be bringing to you a deep dive discussion on Surviving the Game from 1994. This came out a year after Hard Target, about a year, year and a half, you know, another movie that was about hunting homeless people. So there seemed to be a motif in the early to mid-90s of hunting the homeless. I don't know what that was about, but we'll get into it, I'm sure. And my co-host and cohort in crime this evening is my good buddy, Daniel Goad. How are we doing? Doing fabulous, Cam. Thank you so much for having me on yet another episode. I'm glad to see that you haven't gotten tired of me yet. I can't nope. wait to start talking about this movie. You can't get rid of me. <laughs> you, you know, you would sooner get rid of me than uh, than Ice T would get rid of his uh, pack of cigarettes he gets rid of in this movie. <laughs> oh, but yeah, this movie, I remember seeing this at the drive-in, uh, the late great Y&W drive-in, saw it at the theater a couple of times. And I remember, you know, playing quite a lot you know on like usa and tnt and late night cinemax uh, back in the 90s you know it was a big movie on cable but it never really never really hit big in the you know the home box office market it never really hit big in the theaters which is a shame because i think it's got a lot of uh interesting content to it it was directed by one Ernest Dickerson, who's got 72 credits a lot of uh, tv work but his first movie was juice and the second movie was uh, this movie here. He also did Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, Bones, Bulletproof, episodes of The Purge TV show, The Wire, ER, Walking Dead, amongst many others. You know, with 72 credits, the guy's been steadily working. And it's also written by Richard Burnt, who wrote another one of my favorite movies, Virtuosity, the, the remake also of The Hitcher, which originally uh, starred Rooker Hauer. Romeo Must Die, and um, was a writer and producer on one of my favorite shows, Z Nation. So this has got some uh, cred to it. And it has mostly a superb cast. And while I say mostly, I mean William McNamara, I'm looking at you as the weakest link. Now, I'm not... Shots fired. <laughs> right yeah. out the gate. Right I, out the gate. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here. <laughs> he's on the bottom of the ladder, so... Yeah, and you know, the funny thing is, his... The the actor playing his father, F. Murray Abraham, was a Oscar award winning actor, and the to pair him with Walton McNamara just seems to be quite. <laughs> I, I don't well, know. You I got it. Could... To ninety percent of McNamara's lines in this movie is just him screaming "Dad," so there's not yeah. a lot to go off of. Yeah, he. I, I do have one one point in my notes here. I'm like, William McNamara cries and screams like a little baby. He does his half his dialogue as "Dad." Dad, help me, Dad! Like, and yeah, the, the, you know, he, he's he. You can only work with what you, you're given here, right? But uh, Ice T, Rooker Howard, the man himself, playing Thomas Burns, but Ice T also playing uh, the lead hero and here the lead protagonist, Jack Mason. Things uh, I have to say right off the bat, they kind of paint a bleak picture here for you. I mean, he's he's a homeless man. He's digging in the trash for food while inter posed with shots of a guy being hunted in the woods so i would i'd hark to say that they are playing their hand pretty heavy at the beginning wouldn't you 
Yeah, I mean, the beginning of this movie was basically a paint by numbers. This is your hero. We're going to do everything we can to make you feel sorry for them. And basically in that uh, first chapter of our book, per se, uh, he loses everything in a very um, jazz-centered musical uh, scale. So, yeah, in the first few minutes, you're just like, okay, I'm sad. So... What, what now? What's the next? Yeah. It's like, oh, we're, we're going to kill the, a homeless man's dog in the first three minutes of this movie. And then in three minutes later, we're going to kill his best and only friend. It kind of leads, you, you know, they're definitely trying to get your sympathy ramped up for this guy. And, you know, once you get deeper and deeper into the movie and you kind of you know his story. Yeah, they're, they're ba- they are doing a basic uh, paint by numbers. This is your antagonist. These are you know, these are your antagonists. Here's your protagonist. Here's who you're supposed to feel sorry for. And they drive those like points home with like, you know, they hit every nail on the head with a jackhammer. But I mean, even down to the point when his dog gets ran over and the cabbie comes out and is an asshole, like, who's going to pay to clean my car? And it's like, never mind that you just ran over this poor guy's dog. He's going to try to knock this guy out for getting his dead dog's blood on his cab. I mean, the cabbie is an asshole. Well, that too, I think it paints a good picture of the society and kind of the uh, the complete difference between where they were, which I can't even remember. They were in like um, Cincinnati or Chicago or so, I can't even, Seattle. They were supposed to be in Seattle, but I think they were shooting somewhere in Pennsylvania. I think they were shooting yeah. like in yeah. But it splits that between being in the middle of nowhere in the forest. So I th- I think that was a good opening to show like extreme apathy no one knows who you are anything can happen and then uh have that to to transition into the woods and i don't know (laughs) and then we get the the bit of knowledge that we we learn to live by always check the barrel and uh it's a good thing that mason listens to hank right oh that's some pretty heavy foreshadowing to the end of the movie cam Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it will play into our Batman-esque ending that we have going on here. Oh, yeah. Now, I know you want to talk about this this part of the movie. You want to talk about this subject a bit. And the first note I have about it, because, damn it, you had to mention the music before I went and watched it again. So I was paying very close attention to the music direction or lack thereof. But the... Um, uh, first note I have is music during the dinner scene where he's making dinner for his little homeless camp, you know, with the, with the side of beef that they stole from the, you know, the uh, supply house. I'm like, I see it now. I see it now. Like, why do they have this weird kind of upbeat jazz stuff? You know, it just, it, the music in this movie, as much as I love the movie itself, the music does not make sense. So, so, yeah, I kind of have to open up our episode with kind of um, nitpicking per se, but really just kind of throwing a question mark to the entire direction of why the music had to be the certain way. So, like, kind of to go all the way back to how you started the episode, like, I never watched this in theater. I, I guarantee that I saw this on TNT or USA uh, multiple times as a child, and I loved it. I haven't I haven't watched this movie in years, and when you said that you were going to do uh, an appreciation for Rutger Hauer, and then you you was like, oh well, Surviving the Game is on my list. I was I just jumped at it. I was like, I love that movie. So rewatching this, I had a different eye and a different ear 
And as soon as the movie started, I was like, man, this is some really weird jazz and some what are these horns? What are what are these war drums? <laughs> so like I had to actually go back and and add to my notes for, for this episode of like going into detail about this music. And it just it, it, I have a massive paragraph uh, if you'll indulge me just for a quick minute of like, oh, go right ahead. <laughs> just to describe the music. So, for anyone who hasn't watched Surviving the Game, like we say many times, what are you doing with your life? You should please go watch that movie. Um, but even if you have, you may not remember the music, kind of like what both of us have said. So, to start with, the film was edited by nine people. And with with ten additional people that edited the sound, so that was sound, dialogue, ADR, sound effects, and foley. That's a lot of people. It's a lot yeah, of people and doing. And it's got a lot of weird ADR to it. It's like I, I've made a few notes here of different dialogue bits that feel extremely ADR'd. Can I ask if you have one thing about your ADR? Do you, do you have a note of uh, Mason makes really weird sound effect noises, like bodily noises with ADR? No, no, I didn't. I was just like, there was just, it seemed to be a lot of shots, like looking through sniper rifle scopes and looking through binoculars and having them say like, like, oh, where's the water? It's on the ATV. Like, where's Mason? Just different bits like that. But no, I didn't have anything about uh, Mason's bodily noises. I'm I'm sure you do though. No, well, it was just, it was something that I have. I didn't put a note in. It was just very weird. Like uh, the emphasis of making sure that we heard his groans and his... (laughs) it's different sounds but anyway like um lucasfilm sound actually worked on this which was a crazy little credit that i saw after the movie ended and i was like okay (laughs) (laughs) sure um but basically the music makes no sense and um i basically learned from the credits that basically the the following people are responsible for for the music in this so toby emmerich michael ditrick blake mullen Jeff Seats, Stanley Clark, uh, Judd Miller, and Michael Thompson. I, I won't be mean, but it's just, again, what was going on? What was the roundtable discussions with where the music should go? Because it it completely changes the tone of the movie depending on what you're, what you're listening to. So I'll try and be quick <laughs> with this so we can get into the actual like meat of the movie. So... <laughs> Most of the sound design and the music was actually with an EVI instrument. So it's an electronic valve instrument. So it's like a digital flute or an oboe. It's like a, a digital instrument. And that's great. But so like, it's like a digital oboe? Sort of. So this okay. one guy, Jude Miller, was the one of the ones who did most of it. And IMDb actually misspells his name. So that's kind of funny, too. A little <laughs> trivia. But – um he did most of this music, so almost everything that you're hearing of all these other instruments is just one guy, but he's playing kind of like a computer in his hands. So it's really neat. But he went insane. It was like no one gave a leash to him. Like they, they just said, go wild. So like the movie opens with like these jazz horns and this really like sultry, like I'm watching Skinamax at two in the morning kind of music. <laughs> So like, it's like a Red Shoe Diaries kind of music. Sort of, yeah, like a Showtime, you know, adult drama. And then we get like a bunch of repeating tracks throughout the movie. Now, you could argue that maybe that's the theme song, like that Jurassic Park-like 
theme song that plays like five times in the movie. Yeah, that sweeping orchestral track. They usually end up playing it over the aerial shots. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, so like during Mason discovering the heads uh, in the cabin, it transitions from like a high speed chase music to this odd mystery noir track that's that's got this weird didgeridoo tribe sound and then we get like this slide guitar like you're in the middle of the bayou when he runs into the wolf and then you're instantly listening to like this d-day bomb raid music and then it reverts back to the slide guitar like there's just no no quality control (laughs) of like what was going on with the music and like when mason gets out of the river uh, when he's trying to like double back, there's like this electronic keyboard loop button that's got like this awful Congo dance music. Like you know those cheap keyboards that like they have the pre-programmed beats on them. Yeah. Oh yeah, I had one in the '80s as a kid. Yeah, I remember I, those. So like after that, then you have like this um, quartet string Superman like heroic music, and then that transitions into like the cave music in the Zelda video games. <laughs> and I never, put, uh, I never put that, uh, that note on it, but yeah, yeah. You're, you, you're, well, you're hitting the nail on the head there. Like, I know we're going to talk <clears> about <throat> it, but like between, uh, Mason and John C. McGinley's backstory monologue within the cave, like, it's just this weird, like link and Zelda, you know, Ocarina of time music. It's just really weird. Um, and it's, Spoiler alert, obviously, again, you should watch the movie. But when when Dutton dies, we get this like sultry, sad electronic guitar solo, which doesn't fit the emotion or mood at all. And no, no, it doesn't. Not I, at all. Like, I, I didn't say it out loud because it would have been weird me watching this on my couch. But I was like, really, what the hell is going on with this music? Like it it doesn't fit the movie at all. Um, When. Junior stands up to his dad. So when McNamara stands up to F. Murray Abraham, um, there's like this drunken whammy bar guitar sound with war drums again. And it's just, it just, that it pop- almost sounds like a mixture of like Cajun Zydeco kind of music. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a good description. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. So, <laughs> and I'll, I'll be, I'll be quick. I'll try and, uh, shorten this up so um like during the fight between mason and abraham there's like some van halen church music going on like someone was uh rocking out and having like a massive echo of nonsense guitar solo music on it um also side note mason sticking his tongue out when he was getting choked that was hilarious like that (laughs) again the movie doesn't doesn't match well with how it's trying to make you feel like the tension and the uh, the the what's at stake kind of fight between our parties it just doesn't doesn't make a yeah, lot of sense. The only time the music really seems to match is when uh, Ice T is fighting with uh, Busey when he's fighting Doc. Like it, it seems yeah. it seems all right then. There's moments, but it just from one scene to the next, it, there's no co- coercion. It, there's nothing binding it together. Is this so starkly different from one scene to the next? Yeah, I agree that that one where the cabin was on fire. That was great. Um, and then lastly, like these two final pieces that are basically in the, the movie um, during the finale with Howard and Mason, um, when he, when Howard's doing his makeup, 
like when he's messing with his eyebrows, there's like some weird bumblebee reverse choir chanting dizziness and like batshit music going on. And like, it's just so confusing. And then the movie ends again with that Congo keyboard preset and like this cliche Western slide guitar with trumpets. It makes no sense. (laughs) It's a great movie, but like the music it really takes you out of it if you're paying attention to it. I feel like the director must not have given the uh, the musical team like either good notes or any notes at all. It seems like it. I, I, don't, I don't know. Or like the movie was done and then they were like, all right, we'll just throw whatever music you want on it and then toss it out and be fine. Yeah, like know. we have a bunch of music already made from like several other movies that never got used. Like, here you go. Here's 27 tracks. Choose what you well, like. So that's what I actually thought when I when I rewatched the movie and I was listening to the background track. And obviously, like the if you haven't watched the movie, the, the music isn't just like a background. You can't hear it. There's a big chunk of the beginning of the movie when we're setting up who Mason is, like who our hero is. And the music is front and center. Like it's it's a character showing you these montages or going from place to place, showing the sadness of what the character is to, to give him motivation of what to do. So you can't make the excuse of it's like, oh, well, we didn't care too much about the music. But it sounds like they just got like a random pack of garbage music for 2.99 and they were just like eh, it fits so it's just crazy but like i i would definitely say like it it hurts the movie and i know you and i both love love this movie but like the music is bad yeah it, it's definitely something that makes me take a point off in, in the end you know and as, as much as I, I do like this movie i do love it but now that you pointed it out and I paid attention to it, I was just like, ooh, it really anyway. is bad. But anyway. <laughs> Let's talk about the rest of the movie, the rest of the good uh, stuff. Uh, I, I I have a note about some of the dialogue that I love. You know, aside from at the beginning when Ice-T uses the line from the warrior, but how about I take that bat, shove it up your ass, and turn it into a popsicle when he's talking to the security guard? I'm like, listen, I'm like, I heard that line, and it was done better in the Warriors. <laughs> Like, I do believe I heard James Remar utter those exact same set of words put, strung together exactly the same. I actually will give, like, a, a good compliment where there's not too much of this movie that has that kind of uh, cliched Schwarzenegger, you know, Travolta, Sylvester Stallone kind of feel. Like, obviously Mason has, like, a few quips here and there, but... There's there's not really a lot of bullshitting around. Like I really enjoy this movie because it doesn't um, uh, it's not like inflating itself. Like it's a very quick decision making movie. There's not a lot of uh, babbling on. Like you know how the evil James Bond villain talks for five minutes before he does anything. Um, so no, like most of the dialogue is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot that's kind of dumb or. Yeah, uh, unnecessary. The the only line that's really really dumb, the exchange that I feel like is is dumb, is when Busey and Ice T are fighting, and Busey takes the moment while he has the upper hand, just says, "I like my meat rare," and then Ice T throws him into the burning building. He's like, "Why don't you try? Well done, bitch." Yeah, it's just like, 
like, it's okay. Oh, that, that was that was left over from like Stallone's Cobra from '86. Oh, that's that's okay. It's Busey. You gotta get everybody gets one. You know, just give yeah. him give him that line. I mean, at least at least he had something. The people were rude enough to not even have him in the movie for, you know, a quarter of the the runtime. So yeah, he's in basically what first thirty minutes, basically. You know, and he, I mean, he gets his moment to shine more than anybody with that speech. And we'll get to the speech here in a little bit, but uh, the first thing I have to do, have to mention is, well, within five minutes of the movie, you know your your Ice T's character uh, Mason has absolutely nothing to lose. He's homeless. His wife and kid are dead. He's been burnt up. His you know his best friend and dog are are both dead. So enter Charles S. Dutton, who used to be on Rock, which I always that's always I always remember him from, is that. You know, comedic dramedy, uh, I always call it a dramedy, you know, show rock from the late 80s, early 90s. And to have him play like this despicable character that's hunting human beings in this was such a turn and maybe hate his character even more or his character Walter. And I have to say, don't trust a guy like that, that that is following you around and just under the guise of wanting to give you a free meal. And then it's like, oh, we got a job offer offer that'll be enticing for you. It's gonna be nothing but trouble, man. And and as we will find out, it is nothing but trouble. Well, I gotta say, like a lot of um, a lot of performances in this are really underrated. I mean, I know the movie never really like catapulted anywhere. Uh, obviously, it was a it was a good TV movie to put on repeat over the weekends. But just like you said, like um, Dutton is a is a great actor, and the beginning of the movie. Um, it just it just seems that everyone put in an effort. It doesn't feel like anyone really called anything in. And um, Dutton's character was very believable, very empathetic. Like, you know, the way that those scenes were played out at the beginning of the movie before we have the plane ride and we're, you know, in the forest. It felt really good it was enjoyable to watch it wasn't like a chore that some movies kind of have where it's oh my god get it over with i understand your expositioning i yes i know i need to realize who the good and bad people are but and that's the thing too like this movie shows you like you know in the first few moments like you said it it kind of uh flips back and forth between someone running in the forest and like you see people hunting people like it tells you what the movie's about but it it doesn't shy away from like revealing who the bad guys are. It just, you know, meanders around the fact until we actually see them wake Mason up with a desert Eagle in his face. Yeah. I was going to say, and what a rude awakening that was, wasn't it? Just like, Oh, once upon a time there was six little hunters and he's got that desert Eagle pointed right in his eye. Uh, But when we get introduced to Rucker Hauer, now I know I'm, I'm, kind of you know quote unquote sweet on Rucker Hauer a little bit but when he gets introduced as Burns he is so elegant and so meticulous you 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 had said something about me when you had sent that screenshot of your notes you basically had uh, a, a note up that he was somewhere between a James Bond villain and Hannibal Lecter and I think that's the perfect way to describe him yeah I mean so like it's super easy to uh, make someone look good on screen 
You know, like you 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 put the lighting in a specific way, you put the emphasis in the frame to who who you're going to portray, and the audience basically you mold them like putty. You know, if you do it right, it's super easy. But like with Rutger Hauer, like he's already like a legend. Like I mean, just like some of the single shot images that he has in most of his movies, like obviously Blade Runner in the rain, like that. You know, that's burnt into oh, people's yeah. mind. But there's quite a few moments in this movie where he owns the frame, the cameraman, the cameraman's family, <laughs> like just looking into the camera or looking off into the distance, into the horizon. Uh, yeah, I wrote him down as kind of like a James Bond where he's like murdering everyone. And then like this <laughs> Hannibal Lecter, very suave. He doesn't need to shout. He knows exactly how powerful he is. He uh, he's very precise, and like you can actually see how big Rutger is in this movie. Like I, I know a lot of times um, his frame is kind of um, uh, overshadowed sometimes in some of the other movies that I've seen, or he's just wearing bulkier clothes. And I will mm-hmm. admit, Rutger's kind of like not super in shape in this movie. No disrespect to them, but you know he's no, he, he's he's is a little paunchy. He's he's a little thick, yeah. But he looks cool as shit. Like the his wardrobe, his bandana, the his hair, like he looks cool. And I mean, obviously you you have a bunch of alphas. Like the the cast that is here, even I mean, I know F. Murray Abraham isn't really like uh, automatically looked at as to be like a really bad guy, but like he has power. Like most of his his characters he's played in other movies, you know he's um, uh, what's the, what's the word? Um, just um, aggressive. Like you, you know yeah. you, you don't you don't feel super comfortable uh near him but well everybody in this movie it, it just reeks of <clears throat> sorry excuse me everybody in this movie reeks of like high levels of testosterone whereas like everybody is hammered up they're out of breath they're laughing they're screaming <laughs> they're yeah. they're frothing at the frothing at the mouth and like Rooker Howard is like slipping on his reading glasses and reading a book and being so soft spoken and so meticulous and just yeah. subtle and elegant, you know, yeah. where nobody else is like that in this movie. Like I, I wrote down, um, and again, kind of to comment on on Dutton for being just a good actor, like um, Howard and Dutton's chemistry in the movie is really, really good. And yeah, when <laughs> when the tension is brought up and Mason's getting the upper hand, Rutger is just eating Altoids and chewing gum. And just like admiring what's going on. I mean, yeah, again, looking at spoiler his, alert. his framed butterfly mounted in glass and shit, you know? Yeah. And then spoiler alert, when, when Dutton kills McGinley, when he thinks he's going to walk away, Rucker's just eating an apple. He's just chilling out. He's like, we got this. Like he doesn't, he, he never has a moment of weakness other than the end of the movie. But again, to comment on what I said a moment ago, there, there's no, there's no monologue. He doesn't talk. He doesn't try to get out of it. He just literally goes, "All right, kill me." That, you know, do, do it, and he doesn't 
beg, he says it very simply. He puts his hand together like he's praying because he's dressed up like a priest and he's not begging, but he just goes, please, you know, almost, almost in a mocking sort of way. I feel like obviously like Rucker Hauer is his character as Burns is the smartest one of the group. Now, that being said, it's not his idea. You would have thought that the way everything comes out in the wash, that it would be, you know, his idea to put this hunting group together. But you find out through, you know, through the course of the film that it was Gary Busey's character as the doctor who is a fucking psychiatrist. And as Patty always says, she's like, you never trust the psychiatrist or psychologist. <laughs> never. <laughs> but that, you know, and she's right like, there. damn, she's like, yet again, another movie where you can't trust the damn doctor. <laughs> But I mean, right there, like going back to the star power, like the the movie dialogue gives Gary Busey that power. Like his character is now put kind of in the forefront of he's the mastermind behind it. And you and I both know, and for those who may not uh, realize, there was a little bit of, let's say, tension on set behind the camera between Legends, Rutger Hauer and Gary Busey, where they were kind of uh, fighting for – uh, screen time, even though Rutgers basically in nine tenths of the movie, um, but it it kind of gives you Gary Busey is kind of like a red herring, who's the real bad guy, and then when he's unfortunately checked out of the movie, um, we have Rutger just being all suave and you know sauntering with his uh, awesome looking hunting vest and, and bandana going, I can do that. So yeah, just eating an apple while they're killing one of his hunting party. It's almost a very, you know, like uh, an Adam and Eve with the, the, the apple and the devil, you know, it's this kind of, it's, it's very on the nose, but I, I love it. And it's just, uh, but again, that's why we're doing this movie because this Rucker Howard steals it, but let's get into a little bit about the job offer. When Rucker Howard says to him, he's like, all right. And he's like, I, I, you know, I need you for this hunting expedition. You know, you're going to be uh, kind of guiding the group. He's like, I don't know anything about the, you know, the, the woods and hunting or nothing. And he basically t- asked him, you know, how many cigarettes do you smoke? And he's like, well, as many as I can find. So he puts them on that treadmill, tells him, I'll pay you $20 if you can run on this for 30 minutes without quit- quitting. <laughs> and I do love the line. He's like, for $20, I'll run to fucking Alaska. So... <laughs> And, you know, he sends him on his way. And this is the biggest what the fuck moment of the movie. One of two. I have two what the fuck moments because, you know, I always have a what the fuck moment. What the fuck moment number one. How far does a $20 bill travel in 1994? Because he gets a bottle of booze, cigarettes, uh, meat meat to to cook, and enough money for a hotel room. He got that off of 20 bucks. So, So that's one of the problems that I think that this movie has is is obviously the music and then the editing so that was actually one of the things that i had on here of kind of um there's jumps there's jumps in the story that don't really tell the audience what happened i took it as like he he had the 20 dollars, and then it obviously it doesn't show us as the viewer but like he already has a job so i kind of feel like rutger gave him like an advance or something but it just that wasn't filmed or that wasn't put in the final product. Like there's a lot of um, just silly decisions where things are just not filmed or there's jumps or there's scenes that are put together and kind of compiled that, again, are just bad shit. They don't make 
sense. They they kind of ruin the pacing and they just stitch scenes together, and you're it, kind it of felt just like left. scenes were cut out to me. Yeah, so I don't. I would love. Um, because I tried looking for interviews with Ice T and just other members of this cast of like, what happened? What was the filming like? And there's just nothing. I can't really find anything really um, from the time period of anyone talking about the movie being made, which is, you know, it's kind of a bummer. You kind of want to learn about some of these movies that stand the test of time, or at least <laughs> the ones that we won't let die. Right, right. But, that are th- yeah. almost 30 years later and we're still watching them and still here talking about them. So, I mean, in 1994, $20 obviously was a little bit more useful nowadays because that was back in the time of, again, give me $5 for gas. And that that was sufficient. Now that's – no one even knows that turn of phrase kind of thing. Yeah, $5 uh, for gas means like, oh, you want to travel out of the parking lot? <laughs> yeah. So – I mean, yeah, there's tons of other things that like we can get to because I know I know you want to kind of break down the movie uh, as we usually do in the pattern. But, um, yeah, that beginning where he he leaves the office and then does that montage of all of his things, you're really kind of left. Well, you were homeless. You had no money. You were eating food out of a dumpster. Now you have a hotel room, some food. Where did that come from? And it just you know, the movie doesn't tell you. But. Again, it's it doesn't it doesn't ruin the movie. Like I'm trying not to be biased, but there's definitely like some missteps. Yeah, to me, it just seems like either there was gaps in the script or scenes that they've shot and maybe cut out for pacing wise or for time, you know. But that's what it felt like to me. Like, mm, like it could have easily been solved with them, you know, giving him advance on the money, or maybe that's what they did, and they just didn't. Yeah, they just didn't. Uh, you know, pull the trigger on that, but no, yeah. no pun intended. <laughs> check the barrel. Oh, yeah, check the barrel. Um, I love when when Mason gets woken up the next day in his hotel room, and he's like, "Hey, I still got like t- till noon. Fuck off!" And he's like, "Hey, did you want the job or not?" Like, and the whole time Rucker is there, and he's giving him, you know, he tells him, "I'm going to give you five hundred dollars a week. Here's a two hundred dollar advance." The way he's looking at Mason and the way he's grinning at him, he is totally mocking him without, without having to mock him with words. It's just the, the, the thing that Howard was so good at was he was the king of subtlety. I think a, another thing, too, is maybe I'm, I'm hoping is like a directorial uh, insight or maybe th- their own – uh, character building because they've done this so many times getting people and then hunting them that I agree he's kind of mocking him but almost like it's that easy you set up a few things you set the chessboard you move a few pieces they'll do the rest and yeah those opening moments when everything's being built and and this whole foundation of the plot is is setting up Mason has no idea. He's just super happy that he's got a job. He's thinking about all these future things that he can do with whatever money he's going to make. And you you just have this antagonist knowing what the future is going to hold, and they, they have Mason in their hands. So it's, it's really cool to like watch this again knowing what's going to happen so that you can kind of focus on those subtleties. I think that was the difference between this and – Hard Target that came out about a year before. I'm not sure if you ever seen Hard Target with John Coughlin. 
yeah, with Jean-Claude Van Damme, another movie about hunting homeless people. But that one plays up on the, the like, frantic, kinetic action that only John Woo could, can do. That was a straight-up action movie. This is more of a drama, drama with action sprinkled throughout. It's not high-octane action, but it, it does build a story. And it's more, it, it focuses more on the story than it does the action, is what I'm trying to say. But the things they have in here in this movie is like when they're flying off to the, the wilderness, you know, not saying exactly where they're going, but they're in Washington. But the place they're going is called Hell's Canyon. Like, no, like, that's not foreboding at all. Like, you know, it's some beautiful aerial shots and it looks beautiful. And they have that uh, that sweeping music that you described, like the J- Jurassic Park overture. But like, it's called Hell's Canyon. You know, good things <laughs> this are not going to happen. Well, to give benefit of the doubt, I think a lot of those uh, extreme expedition uh, give me money so I can take you to see something remote. They always have those weird extreme names, you know, they, they always kind of have to warm up in marketing. You got to make it sound cool. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very true. But At least it wasn't misleading. There were canyons. You know, yes, that's that's another great thing about this. And I don't know if you were going to lead into it, so I apologize. But um all of this movie was filmed on location. There were no sound stages. I did have and a note about that. Yeah, that's amazing. I yeah, mean, no, no sets, no sound stages, all purely locations. I I know for a fact that 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 hindered uh, the money because I mean, filming on location and having to deal with natural light, animals, you know, the actual wilderness, the weather, like all of that is very expensive, but. <laughs> It's such a a great part of this movie where you you know for a fact they're actually in the woods. Like I know most movies if it's either CGI or if it's built on a stage and it's, you know, fake trees and whatever, if you know some people it it takes it takes out of the the moment. But like really knowing that when Mason goes down the waterfall or when they're on a canyon when they're in between like uh, like the the tree branch sorry the tree stump bridge like all of it's real it makes it way more enjoyable of like um, the scale like when you can see shit in the background you know that that stuff is there miles away you know seeing an actual mountain it's kind of the same thing like I'm rewatching Lord of the Rings right now and um, it's just it's just so enjoyable knowing that they're there in you know yeah, like in the thick of things yeah anyway sorry. and I'm, yeah and speaking of budget this movie had a budget of 7.4 million had a US and Canada gross of 7.7 million such a small amount of money yeah i mean it's a lot of money but we know how much movies cost and it's still it's 1994 but like it's only 7 million dollars like, and it and it barely it made like three hundred grand past its own budget back. I'm sure it's probably made more money back, you know, on home video and whatnot and overseas. But for the U.S. gross, it didn't. It barely broke even with publicity and advertising. Not even. Not even broke even. Yeah, but but again, this was um, around the time frame of movies kind of made their legacy on TV and in circulation. So you know there were tons of places that the the movie would be shown so at least it's still got traction might, might not have made enough money but it's still there we're still talking about it you know all these years later so 
yeah, exactly. We're talking about it 28 years later. It's still, you know, heavy on our minds. So, well, so you're talking about box offices. Um, can mm-hmm. I can I talk about other movies that went oh, off oh, co- into that year? Of course. So the only one I know for sure that came out in 94 is uh, off the top of my head. It was True Lies. Other than that, I'm not sure what came out in 94, but I'm sure you got the whole list. Such a good movie. True Lies is underrated, too. We should do that on an episode. So I'm so, down. I'm down with with some of our recent episodes that we've done together. I like at least bringing this up for our viewers of remembering the time period. Um, a lot of times when we watch movies and we kind of forget where the world was at that point in time. So like here's just the top grossing movies of 1994. Uh, so we have The Lion King, Forrest Gump, True Lies, The Mask, Speed. The Flintstones, Dumber and Dumber, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Interview with a Vampire, mm-hmm. Clear and Present Danger. That's a heavy year. Those are a lot of like really massive films. And then these aren't even ones that were like on the top, top of the the bulletin board, you could say, like, you know, prominent. But we have Leon, the professional. We have the Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction. The Usual Suspects, Natural Born Killers. Like, that was a heavy-duty year. Like, obviously, like, man, what a time to be alive back then. Those are some, like, again, all of those movies we could talk about for the next 40 years. So, Exactly. I mean, even Got the Crow came out that year, same year. Oh, I don't even, I haven't seen that on my, yep, The Crow, there we go. And Stargate. Oh, and Street Fighter. Ugh. <laughs> anyway, anyway i'm looking at a list here too and i'm hey we can't forget d2 the mighty ducks part two <laughs> <laughs> that's for another show that's for another show. yeah that that that's uh that'll be a redemption episode episode <laughs> oh but back 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 to uh, our our group in hell's canyon when they finally get to hell's canyon uh we get introduced to gary Busey as doc hawkins f murray abraham is wolf senior Willie McNamara is a uh, junior. Bleh. And then one of my favorite character actors, I love him in so much stuff, uh, John C. McGinley as John Griffin. I love him in Office Space. I, I loved him. Uh, he's just so good and so fucking intense. And he's the one character that makes a turnaround. He's the one the character that has a turnaround and about faces. You know, I mean, like, if you know him from you know shows like Scrubs or movies like, you know, Seven and Wall Street and Platoon and stuff. He's a very intense individual. But I love the fact that they give him a weakness. He's kind of the one character that has a weakness. He's got asthma. And they use that. It's not just a a trope, you know. I mean, it is a trope. But usually it's afforded to our our lead hero or the lead, you know, hero's significant other. No, it's given to one of our villains to when uh, Mason has him held captive he starts to have have an asthma attack, and even though this guy has already tried to attack, you know, Ice T's character even before the big reveal that they're hunting him, you know, he loses it when he makes the when when Mason makes the uh, offhanded remark, "Yeah, I killed somebody. I killed my wife and kids," you know, and that sets McGinley off. Is uh, what's his character's name? John Mc, John Griffin. But I just love the fact that they, you know, they give him a human quality, a human weakness of having asthma and 
you know, Mason, Ice-T's character has to help him out. It shows that he's a lot more humane than any one of them are. Oh, yeah. And I mean, again, because it starts at the beginning of the movie with him and his dog. Like, you already know that the character has compassion. He has the ability to make decisions. But, yeah, I put that down in my notes, too, where having the one of the antagonists have a weakness like that and then have the hero help him and not just kill him outright. I mean, he doesn't even do anything. He just ties him up and then he leaves them so he can be found by his buddies. Like, it's super like a dumb decision in terms of like what our hero should do to survive. But again, it just, it just paints that picture of Mason's a good, good person. And we just continue the, the merry-go-round of following Mason through the same (laughs) mile of forest. (laughs) Right. And it never makes sense of where they're going because everything kind of, it's not by any fault of the location, I think, but everything looks the same. You know, no matter where they're going, except for when they get, like, to the caverns, they get to, like, the river, you know, it's obviously yeah. a little bit different. But the areas within and around the canyon and just in the woods themselves looks like miles and miles of the same stretch of road, so to speak. Well, that's kind of one of my things, too, because I mentioned before, like, there's no scale. Like, you kind of um, – the, the way the movie's edited. So, on one hand, everything looks the same to – paint that picture of it is hopeless like there's no direction there's no markers so everything kind of looks the same it's easy to be lost in the forest so it's you're afraid of that yeah but like also, if you don't know which direction you're going you could be just consistently going in or constantly going in circles yeah but then the way that the movie goes and, and how mason kind of keeps eluding his his uh predators um the movie just doesn't have any semblance of where stuff is like a, a lot of times when we have like, let's say the Bourne movies with Jason Bourne, like obviously there's, there's locations, there's maps, there's cities, like he's going always forward or at least going to different rooms. When you're in a forest, you only have trees and a hill and maybe a river. Like you don't know where stuff is in relation to other stuff. So there's just like, um, there's no scale or sense of distance while they're in the woods and the way they filmed it. Like you never really know the distance between Mason and Rucker Hauer or like everything's cut into singles too. Like there's very few when they start chasing uh, multiple people in the frame, unless like it's for a purpose, there's just so many cuts of like single shots of the back of someone up a hill or the side of them running through um, the forest and the dumb thing, too, is like the Rucker Hauer and all these people, like they have amazing tracking skills because there's no many, no matter how many times Mason evaded them, discombobulated them, made them double back, go through the water. They don't have dogs so that, you know, they, they could choose the wrong direction at any time, but they never did. They found they- Mason every single time. <laughs> Every time he eluded them, it was only for a matter of time. I think it was just because the familiarity that they had of the land. It was like the point where they first let him go, and they get to the point like Rooker Hauer says, you know, none of them has ever done that before. He's like, he went back to the cabin. He doubled back. And that's why they know this guy is special because, like, they know the lay of the land. They know which direction everybody's going to run for ease, where they're going to go. That's why, that like, it even takes him by surprise when he tricks them out the first time. And they think he's smoking a cigarette. And like, that stupid son of a bitch is smoking a cigarette. And you know, he just took a cigarette and stuck it in a tree to lead them off of his scent. But they still found him. 
and and that's kind of the other thing too and i know that we'll kind of talk about this near the end but like mason's background it never says anything about it but you could always you could make up your own head canon of him having some sort of military background or something because like he just i mean we said it he's like batman near the end of the movie he just has this like <laughs> yeah. this superpower and he just is pulling these things out of nowhere but we have no knowledge of who he is before the beginning of the movie the the, the story doesn't say anything about his background other than his wife and his kid but even then it's you know, behind a very opaque window. Like, we don't even know any details. So, like, I don't know. I, I've had fun with thinking about his um, his backstory after this rewatch. I always kind of wondered if he had some sort of military background, because the most you learn about him, other than, you know, about his wife and kids burning up in the house fire, is that he was a mechanic. And that's all you really know. That's yeah, it. but you remember the movie The Mechanic with Jason Statham? He wasn't a mechanic. Yeah, that's true. Maybe he was. I don't like, know. I'm, I'm just using air. I'm using air, I'm using air quotes here. Maybe he was a mechanic <laughs> or a fixer. Don't worry about me. I'm just thinking of different conspiracy theories of this movie 30 years after it released. <laughs> you know, we're going to get a sequel some 30 years later. Mason's going to get a phone call, much like De Niro and the Irishman, and somebody's going to be asking him, "I heard you paint houses." Hey, you know? I. I would watch that. He's. Uh, Ice T's still super. He's only gotten better with acting. So yeah, he's gotten better. I mean, his SVU episodes have proven that. I mean, he's actually. Can I just say for a moment? Because I, I, Ice T, does a really good job in this film. In, in comparison to the heavy hitters that are in this movie, the people who either had a lot of experience before this movie was filmed, or the people who continue to have m- major success, I think he did very well. That could be my biased opinion, but like. I, it's weird. I would love to figure out why he was chosen to be in this movie, but it works in my opinion. I think he did very well to hold his own on screen with, you know, the likes of our cast. I think the reason why he was chosen is because of his attitude, to be quite honest. You know, they, the, the tagline for this movie was, you know, something along the lines where he, you know, he doesn't care where, whether he lives or dies. He just wants to be the one who, you know, who, uh, chooses the when and where and he even says that at one point in the movie he's just like hey you know i don't give a shit if i live or die i just want to have the the say so and you know I mean, like who pulls the trigger and whatnot you know other other words uh, you know he, he wants he wants to know whose whose uh, finger is on the trigger but speaking i gotta make a weird segue here because i feel like we've jumped around a little bit in the movie you know, jumping back and forth, which is fine. You know, we do not have to cover this in a linear fashion, but we've only touched base on it briefly. But speaking of the heavy hitters. Gary Busey's monologue. We've got to talk a little bit about that. Indeed, in some detail. Now, I read. Now, I don't know how much of this was true because you you had touched base on it as well too. That uh, when he had came up, that he had came up with that monologue himself. That he was he was supposed to be writing the entire dinner monologue about the origins of his uh, his scar or his birthmark, as he had as he called it. 
Now, I, I know uh, which you've already touched base on to him and Howard. I kind of had a push and pull as to, you know, who was, you know, coming out the, the heavy in that scene. But Busey owns it. He does that scene. It, you know, it goes on for three and a half, maybe four minutes. And there's one middle section where he's telling the story. And I won't re- regale you with the whole story, folks, at home. But, you know, it's basically a story about him having a puppy having a, a, a pit bull or a bulldog. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was a pit bull. And he had it from 9 to 13. And at 13, his dad had him start training it by throwing cherry bombs and firecrackers out it t- till the dog would attack this dummy. Then at 13 years old, he takes him out and tells him, hey, you know, you're going to become a man today. You're going to go out into this corral. You're going to fight the dog to the death. You're going to throw cherry bombs at it. And you're either going to kill him or he's going to kill you. It's a great scene. The emotion that he goes through when he gets down to the point where the dog attacks him and he's pantomiming going through the story of fighting the dog and he actually loses his breath. Like he gets breathless, like he's lost in the moment. Yeah. And he's talking about licking the blood off his hands. He goes through such a range of emotions and it's not goofy Gary Busey. This is down and dirty, serious Gary Busey. He yeah. Never this was better. back when he was still scary, like not talking about eagles having foresight and telepathically telling him what to do with his, you know, past self. Like, <laughs> right. This was talking scary. Cream corn on his genitalia, you know, and things like that. <laughs> That's a story for another day. But no, I I agree. It, and it, with my notes with this monologue, I mean, Gary Busey is obviously marketed on this movie very heavily, even though he's. I mean, not to be disrespectful, but he's like a bit part. He's a bit character. The, yeah, with just he's the merely a supporting of, role. But he's prominently in the trailer. He's prominently on the poster. He's, you know, one of the top build people, obviously because of his star power. But, you know, they put a lot of of this movie on his shoulders, I would say after the fact. But his monologue for Prince Henry Stout I got to say, and if you if you don't agree with me, please message me after this is posted. This is one of the best monologues with, quote unquote, the monologue, you know, a direct one person telling a story to the camera with no interactions. It's it's basically a single person uh, skit. It's one of the best monologues I've ever seen. And I think it's very underrated, too, because you, you kind of know that thing of people go to auditions and they choose a monologue and everyone wants to pick like raging bull or uh i don't know just some of the other stuff you need to do prince henry stout like if you want that role do this like have this audition as you know what you're doing next but like it's it's great yeah the the camera is slowly pushing forward it's basically one take. So the the camera only really cuts maybe two to three times. Right, right. And, and then all those like quick reaction shots from the other people. But really, you could tell it was all done in one take. Yeah. So, yeah, the best part of the story for me is like in and it's so visceral where he's telling the story. And then when he quotes his dad, he starts acting like his dad when he says now, like it's just superb and yeah so the the story with this and again over time stuff becomes inflated with rumor and speculation and conjecture so no one really fully knows the whole story between 
with the people who were on on set. From what I can gather from a mul- multitude of articles, is the the background of Gary Busey's character was in the script, but it wasn't had didn't have anything to do with what we see edited for the movie. So like he did have something that he described his background because the 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 round table of their dinner put emphasis on Gary Busey's character and that's when he had that interaction with Mason. But Gary Busey, I'm I'm assuming he was in his hotel room or talking with his agent before the movie was ever filmed and he was like this is bullshit. I don't have enough screen time. Uh, I I want something more. And he had the balls to tell the director, I have something written. We have time. Let me do this. And if you want to use it, that's fine. But film it and let me show you what I can do. And they they did it. And literally, that's the movie. That's the best part of the movie. Like, to me, that's the legendary part of this movie where after everything, you're still going to remember Busey's monologue. You could forget everything else within the movie, but it's literally his story. That's that's like three minutes long. It's it's less it's less time than it takes to it, like a commercial break when this movie right. was on on TV. You could have three commercials for AIG, some crap you don't need for your bathroom, and a car. <laughs> you know, commercials for that. <laughs> it's it's just so good. It's just so good, and it's just insulting that he's just underused. It's yeah, just but, it's terrible that he just ended so early within that movie. Yeah, like to me, if they would have switched his character out somewhat with Wolf Senior and just had F. Murray Abraham bumped off, and and, and you I, know, I actually thought about that. Just add someone else to the party. Just add some some cannon fodder. And then have them die at the beginning of the movie. Like, I just don't, I don't get, they could have just paid some other person of a name. Like, uh, you remember when we did the episode of John Carpenter's Vampires and like all of those people get killed in the hotel room? Right, right. There were a lot of really good actors there and they were murdered. (laughs) Like, (laughs) why not have them later in the movie? I just, the decision making from top to bottom for this movie is just so weird of what they decided to do with some stuff. Speaking of John Carpenter's vampires, I mean, Daniel Baldwin probably wasn't doing anything that week. They couldn't have got him to come (laughs) in and do a cameo. (laughs) Like, look, we'll give you some of the pig that we cooked. We'll pay you a half rate, you know, something like that. If you can stay on the, on the the treadmill for 30 minutes, we'll give you an extra $20. There you go. (laughs) And speaking of the, the cook and the pig thing was bullshit. Like they cooked that pig in less than three hours, and there's no way that that <laughs> I was. Know, right? complete, I knew you had an issue with that. Complete <laughs> crap, because they're all wearing the same clothes. They just got off. It's the same day. Like there's no way they cooked that pig. Bullshit. <laughs> that, that's see, that's where your your um, suspension of disbelief doesn't kick in. It's just like nope, nope, I ain't having I, it. Yeah, the movie was ruined after that point. <laughs> Uh, speaking of dinner, I, I love the breakfast scene almost as much as the dinner scene, the banter they have in the beginning after they let set iced tea loose and tell them, hey, listen, start running. You got enough time for us to have a leisurely breakfast. And, uh, you know, if you can get to civilization before we catch you, you're free to go, which I, I personally do not believe for a hot second 
that they would have let him go, even if he got to the city. I feel like oh. they would have like hunted him down to the ends of the earth. Oh yeah. But I love the breakfast banter. You know, John C. McGinley is, is eating breakfast. Wolf Jr. can't eat, so he decides, I'm going to do a little switcheroo here. And he takes and eats his breakfast. Busey is ready to go rip-roaring. He's like, let's go now, you know. So, and Rucker Hauer is just like, calm down, digest your food. And <laughs> smiles and looks at his little glass case with his little butterfly in it. I just love the nuance. Like he said, it's very Hannibal Lecter-like. Well, there's a lot of stuff, too, there in layers, because, like, number one, kind of like how I was talking about of the juxtaposition between, like, the Seattle life at the beginning of the movie and, like, the forest, like, this scene of the breakfast is uh, interlaced with Mason basically running his lungs out in in the forest trying to, to get away, and then it just keeps cutting back to, you know, them eating sausage and eggs and just chilling out and doing whatever, and it paints the picture of, obviously, like, the pace where it's an up and down feeling, but also like the bad guys, they have no worries. Again, we don't know how many people they've killed at least 20 or 30, but um, it's, it's just such a great uh, building of the, like the expectation of the movie of kind of like painting um, the, the bad guys of like, they know they're going to win, but we have to root for the underdog anyway, because that's the whole, it's the whole part of the, the, the thing yeah but exactly. yeah the the breakfast scene is just so um just interesting it's just an interesting thing to add in there but it is kind of again the suspension of disbelief so mason was just wearing all of his clothes to bed and then they kicked him out and he was fully dressed with everything like like all he had to do was put his vest on like put that shit on put it on and like wait so he only slept outside of his vest yeah i don't know they uh, they kicked him out but he was fully clothed i don't know there's also an, there's also a funny thing. There's a little blooper within the movie. I don't know if you caught it. And if you've never watched the movie, watch for this. Um, when they wake Mason up and they're about to throw him outside, um, the the point of view kind of angle that the camera goes into, which is kind of that um, very dizzying vertigo kind of feeling, um, F. Murray Abraham grabs the door and he tries to open it but he doesn't turn the knob and he throws his whole body into it, but he, he gets denied and the door won't move. And it's this really funny. I never noticed that they kept it in the movie, but like he, he really tried and he almost threw his arm out of socket. (laughs) It's just so, it's just so funny. And then they cut and then, you know, Mason's throwing out the front door, but like I was watching this really intently because I wanted to, you know, I was taking this seriously. I never, I never noticed that. I will have to watch it over again. It's uh, funny. You'll giggle. Uh, and you'll also, <laughs> sure. Did you giggle when they were eating the pig and Charles Dutton when he was talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. You can you can tell if it's if it's quality. Like yeah, the the whole num 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 like. The way what you, was that? I would have told him like cut. We're trying to stop that. <laughs> you need to look intimidating. People are laughing at you. Like I don't know. This movie was enjoyable. It was it was kooky to watch. It was it's it's wacky in some spots, especially that like yeah, you you, you can tell by 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 the age and by by, by how tall they are. And <laughs> oh, great great stuff! I I love the scene too when he doubles back to the cabin, and when he take but right before he takes out uh, Gary Busey's character when he gets that trophy room revelation because he thinks there's guns in there and he breaks in and it's just a bunch of severed heads. That was cool. I mean, I'm, that was like the kind of the one part of the movie that felt like a horror movie to me. 
I mean, it did kind of change. Like the 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 music changed, obviously, because we mentioned that. But um, it was giving Dutch angles. The kind of the color changed because the the light showing through all of the tanks of heads. Like, yeah, like for a second, it kind of changed into a horror movie. You know, the the um, prevailing attacker always go- coming towards you. You know, the unstoppable force. Um, but then it, you know, it threw that out the window. And again, it was just <laughs> a <cat and> mouse <laughs> kind of thing. So it, it was it was weird. You know, it just felt like a bunch of people were working in this working this movie at the same time and they all had conflicting ideas of the final product and they just kind of like slap dashed it together so yeah yeah i'm, I'm sure that's probably what went down now no I, I was talking about what the fuck moments i have another one and you can tell me if there's something i missed here but he mason went through the, the river not necessarily the river rapids but he you know he went off the side of the cliff went into the water um how the Fuck, how in the flying jumped up Jesus H. Christ on a pogo stick was his cigarette still dry? Yeah, I knew that was going to be one of them. <laughs> like, oh, it even says it's another bit of weird ADR. Oh, man, they're still dry. And it's just like, it was, it was, it felt like to me like somebody in a test screening was just like, how are the cigarettes dry? Well, he just needs to reference it. Oh, wow, they're still dry. Like, they, they, they weren't sealed. They weren't still in cellophane. They were wide open. Those things but have they, been... A, but they were in his pocket, and it was a hunting vest. I don't know. It's that sense of suspension <laughs> of disbelief thing. Because, I mean, right after that, he does the whole gag with the smoking tree. So, like, it kind of leads – it leads into other stuff. And I think, I think too, the – it's not just this movie. A lot of movies set up a future payout or a payoff. Like, they, they have to – provide the prop with an insert or a close-up to help the audience along of like remembering oh this character has this on their either possession like this will come into play later in the movie i don't know if that's one of the things with it because it's just there's a lot of stuff in this movie where like things obviously the dialogue carries like there's like um cliched stuff like you know check the barrel that kind of uh, is a running gag but to, to me, that's kind of what that felt like. It was reminding you that Gary Busey's offer of this cigarette pack was still in his vest, and it leads into the payoff of the smoking tree. I don't know. That's what that's what I kind of think of it. Yeah, I mean, I get it, but I'm just again, I'm just nitpicking. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll I'll match your what the fuck moment with one of my own. Um, this kind of contradicts my conspiracy theory of mason has like military experience um no, obviously I, I bet you a dollar and i will venmo you or paypal you this <laughs> if i'm wrong i bet you a dollar i know what it is i i because well, a dollar is about all i have but i want to i want to take you up on that but i did show you the screenshot of all of my notes before we did this but i'll i'll say it just to be funny so mason apparently doesn't know how shotguns work uh, <laughs> because he, and this is the thing too. If we don't know the distance, like there is no two shot or long range wide, like you don't know how far they are. But Mason's on a ridge above our antagonist, and he tries to snipe them with a Spaz twelve shotgun he got from one of the the killers. And I laughed out loud. I literally chuckled 
outward. <laughs> yeah, like, because I don't who tries to snipe anybody from... I mean, like, they at least let you know that it's a ways away, because when Rooker sees him, he just sees the reflection of light, so it's not like he sees him. You know, you yeah. get him using air quotes here. So, but he's trying to snipe with a shotgun, and yeah, that's the one I was aiming at. I'm just saying that... Like, yeah, that's funny. That's that's. And I, I got another what the fuck moment. I know I said I only had two, but what the, what the hell? I'm going to throw in another one. Is after Mason pulls a Friday the Thirteenth Part Three and drops from overhead on top of John McGinley to knock him out. I'm going to say straight up, Mason did not carry big-ass Griffin, six foot six of them, all the way up <laughs> that ridge to that cavern, you know, like over ridges and rocks and boulders and up uphill. He's Batman. Both ways. He's Batman. <laughs> you don't need no painkillers. Painkillers are just bitchments. See, that was a funny thing, too, because I have a quote right after he jumps on his head, like a weird, you know, Super Mario's brother Goomba attack. Um I don't know if it was a fake tree, but Ice-T totally slammed John C. McGinley's head into that tree when he carried him and he was like, shut up. And he like knocks him out. Oh, when he was like fireman carrying him over his shoulder? Like, I don't know what that tree was made of, but he hit that thing hard. And I was like, oh, my God, is John C. McGinley about to fight Ice-T on some sort of phone? It looked weird. It didn't really look like bark, but it was still funny as hell. Like that was... I bet that was funny to film. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was great. And then we get another funny moment, but it's again so subtle is when they're talking, um, Dutton and Rooker are talking back and forth. And as you put it, you already touched briefly on this, but I'll touch on it again. When he breaks out the tin of Altoids and he offers one to Dutton and puts it in his mouth for him, like they're so close and such good friends. They have that unspoken an unspoken dialogue between the two of them. Like they both have done this. I think in my head, they, the two of them have done this much more than the rest of them. Yeah. They seem calm. Everybody else seems little thrown back by it. And that's kind of the, um, the really, really good thing about this movie is it, it doesn't lose you. I think, I think those little small things that Rucker Hauer and uh, John Dutton did. Wait, that's not his name. Charles Dutton. Charles Sutton, sorry, my apologies. Um, it's like they it's like they workshopped the characters together. Again, I don't know if the director gave them like hints or these cues, like these mannerisms, but that kind of behavior, like the chemistry that they had together, especially with those two, because almost everyone else is uh, polarizing. Because I mean, you have Rucker Hauer being really, really curious about uh, Wolf uh, Junior. And if he's going to do it, and then you have the... And you know he's never going to. You know for a yeah. fact that he is never, ever going to. And then you kind of have the the push and pull between John C. McGinley's character, because he's, at the beginning of the movie, very, very aggro. And then he turns tail, basically doesn't want to do this anymore. So Dutton and, and, and Hauer, sorry, uh, Burns and... and uh, oh my god, I can't keep the names together. <laughs> Rucker Hauer <laughs> and Charles S. Dutton... Their chemistry is so interesting that it makes you keep watching it. At least from my perspective, it was always a an interesting new thing because every time that Mason got the upper hand, they were proud. It was like a 
uh, stepdads watching their kid at a, a baseball game or something like, oh, I'm so proud of that like he's he's so smart. This is great. This is a great hunting thing or whatever. Th- th- those were great moments that in another movie you would get bored halfway through again, like this kind of telegraphs. This is a very telegraphing movie. You kind of know the hero is going to win, but it's all those little things that add up throughout the movie that make it still entertaining and make you not want to look at your phone or not, you know, not pause the movie when you go to the bathroom, like those kind of movies, like everyone knows kind of what I'm describing. So, yeah. I yeah, love it's, it's that type of moments where you're you're engrossed in it. You're not paying again, like you said, you're not paying attention to your phone. You're not just like, oh, this is boring. I'm distracted. You're never distracted. Or at least I, I feel like I never was. Until that music kicks in. But yeah, yeah. other than that. <laughs> uh, another little nuance moment that I love is when uh they're camping out overnight and old Rucker just sparks up a joint. You know, and he's just smoking a joint, and then uh, F. Murray Abraham, Wolf Senior, shows up, and he's like, I don't know how we're going to find him. He's like, oh, I know where he is. He's like right over there, and he points out and uses the binoculars, and he has a pinpointed where he is in that ridge. But I uh, just like, Brooker Howard's just having a good time, smoking a doobie, you know, working that apple for all it's worth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just always doing something, something that's nuanced, you know, clipping his fingernails, looking at a, at a butterfly, doing things that are not normal aesthetics that you would think uh, an everyday actor would choose to do. But he's so subtle with everything that he does. I kind of because this is why I wanted to look at interviews so bad. I wanted to kind of see if there's any kind of comment of, of how the movie was made. I really and this is really uh, grasping for straws here. This is just my opinion. I really think that Rutger may have looked at this character as he was the lead because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of background mannerisms that he does or or things that make his character super interesting. And again, that's kind of the Hannibal Lecter label that I put on him. Like he's scary as shit. He's super uh, violent. Like you don't want to mess with him. But you're allured to them, like you want to keep paying attention to them. And I almost feel like when he was portraying this character, that that character, if expanded on, that could have a prequel, like him and Charles Dutton. Like it's never going to happen. It's completely, you know, dumb. But the characters to me feel way more fleshed out than a lot of other run-of-the-mill, color-by-numbers antagonist of other other movies that are similar to this because they don't go the extra mile with like those little subtle details. They don't, they don't do little things to make them more interesting than the hero because, I mean, that's, that's kind of what happened. Like, um, again, Ice-T does a great job, but Ice-T doesn't have a lot of flair, I guess. Maybe that's a bad word, but Rucker Howard's stealing the movie. I mean, once. Well, that's once, what he does. Once you know, Gary Busey's done. Like, yeah, once Gary Busey's out of the way, is the Rooker Howard show. So, I mean, it, it's part of the appreciation month. We got to re- revolve this all the way back to Rucker. But I mean, he he steals the show to where yes, he's a bad guy hunting people, but like he just makes it look so not bad because you know he doesn't he doesn't act. Like you would think he would until he loses his shit at the end of the movie. I wish he would have went way more overboard, like, you know, kind of like had a Joker moment. But um, 
Yeah, he kind of keeps it. He keeps it. You know, he keeps it together. Other than just like he's like, "Go ahead, you got the gun. Please kill me." But he doesn't necessarily beg. He just says, "Please do it." You know, it's just, it's a weird way that he has about it. But that's Rucker's way. But uh, I think the next best scene past the monologue is when Walter gets it when Ice T sabotages the ATV and it blows his legs off and wounds him and he's all bloodied up. When Rooker Howard leans down into him, he has such a weird way, a weird method of putting Walter down by taking his index and his uh, his middle fingers, pressing them to his neck. And he yeah, goes, dude. I'm going to have to put you to bed. Like he, and, and, and Charles Dutton just kind of nods and smiles for a brief moment while he like basically suffocates him. And it's a, again, what weird is moment. their backstory? Like how many, like what have they done in their past? Yeah. Like it's super weird. And that's what you remember. Like it literally, like the, the, the two fingers were basically going into both of his nerves on each side of his larynx. And he either was pushing in to uh, close the restriction of airflow and basically painfully suffocate him. Or he literally was closing the, the oxygen to his brain. So, I mean, I'm not a doctor or, you know, know anatomy very well, but that's that's my assumption, which is yeah, that's what awful. I always figured. That's <laughs> an awful way to die. But like then that that's the other um, highlight of this movie is this movie isn't that uh, violent. It, it's not that gr- grotesque. Like there's not a lot of um, blood and gore. Uh, I mean, the bloodiest, goriest scene is when uh, Charles Dutton gets blown off the ATV. I was going to argue that the fake dog at the beginning of the movie had more blood on it than than Dutton. Like, probably, you're probably right. Yeah, but but that's I think that's what um, it made that scene with Dutton so big is we didn't really see anything that you know that massive um, and so quickly. You know, we have the explosion and then we. <laughs> We see him jutting out of the ground with his, you know, his stubs. Yeah, that's pretty startling because it doesn't give you a lead up. Obviously, we have the explosion and you see you see his uh, his character or the the body double, whatever, flop away. But it's immediately on to him on the ground like it was crazy good. Like that was a good reaction kind of uh, speed thing within the editing to do that. And I don't know whether or not I would use the term sympathy and feeling any kind of sympathy for Charles Dutton, you know, for the Walter character or for or Burns, you know, Howard's character. But there's something there. I don't know exactly what the word is, but maybe it's a shred of sympathy because you feel like he's putting down his best friend and he regrets this moment entirely. That's why he kind of if you notice the next shot, his eyes are red they're stinging with tears. You know, he's not crying, but he, he's on the verge. And he this is the point where he could, quote unquote, cut loose and go psychotic. But he doesn't. He keeps it together. It's a F. Murray Abraham that ends up uh, losing his shit and overacting to the nth degree. He's I, I, I feel like it's very weird that he was an Oscar winning actor uh, at one point because I see movies, so many B movies that he's been in. I'm not saying that this is a B movie, but. He hams it up so much. It's just like, he won an Oscar? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, I think too, from, from watching this, and again, it could be just be my perspective. After Dutton dies, there's a weird change with, obviously, the emphasis and the editing, where 
it kind of feels like they don't know who to pay attention to because, like you said, Howard doesn't go off the deep end. He's still very reserved but extremely hurt. Like he is a wounded beast now, and you're kind of waiting for the, the, the time for him to snap. But, you know, that doesn't really happen. But, yeah, the, here comes F. Murray Abraham in his leather and 100% cotton outfit, <laughs> sweating his ass <laughs> off like a Gucci Garth Brooks. <laughs> he, he's, he's taken Gucci Garth Brooks. You are the, a wordsmith, sir. I love it. <laughs> he, he takes the, the, the lead. He basically it's funny because when Howard is off in the distance, when he's kind of being isolated, F. Marie Abraham is in between us and and Howard. Like he's standing basically 50 percent away from the camera. And it's like he's trying to take the spotlight to, to at least have more dialogue, be more prominent in the frame. It's very weird. But then it kind of uh, leads, you know, around because then F. Marie Abraham and Mason fight when he becomes Batman. Um, But it's a very weird change in this in the pace and the speed, in my opinion. I don't if um, I don't know whoever's listening. If you if you agree, I, I would love to see comments or something about that. But like it just feels very odd. Like there's a there's a skip within the record player of this movie and it just it just changes the pace but maybe that was intentional i don't i don't know it was weird i don't know you said weird now you said weird there i've got something weird for you mason's method of cutting down a tree (laughs) (laughs) using his his eight shotgun shells to cut down a tree and having just one enough shots to to, to cut down that tree to close that gap see that that's another part of the movie that that fails. It just doesn't it doesn't work. If the if the movie would have edited his scenery for us to know, there was no other way for him to go across that that gap, that little canyon uh, open mouth part of the mountain. Then we would have understood. Use all of your ammo that you have on your only weapon while you're being hunted to death to do this. But then he just leaves the bridge. Like he doesn't pull. He doesn't try and move the 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 tree trunk away so that they can't follow him and then obviously he's shooting six times with all of his ammo so they know where he is it's completely batshit it's so stupid so again my conspiracy theory that he's smart and has military background like it's just being thrown out the window but if they would have just shown that he had no other way it would have made a little more sense but why not just take a detour why waste all of your ammo on a tree if you're literally just going to let them follow you? It was all stupid. Yeah, it's like a movie. I, he he wanted to lead them. He wanted sense. to lead them out there so he could pelt them with rocks later. Exactly. Great. But that's how strategy you there, Mason. Yeah, use the shotgun shells to cut down a tree and then chuck rocks at them. That, that's... And kill the dude who wants to save your life. Yeah, the, the only dude who does not want to kill you, <laughs> that's the guy you kill. But it, it does give F, F, F. Murray Abraham, as Will Senior, a, a reason to go off the deep end, and then, as you put it, co- confront uh, Mason. And now that he's evolved into the Dark Knight, it's just it's just so stupid. Also, again, dog shit editing. It's immediately nighttime. Like after all of that, like it turns night instantly. Like when F. Murray Abraham loses his son, like it just the sun goes away immediately, and it's it's nighttime now. So. I don't know. It's like <laughs> it's like time just skipped. 
Yeah, it, it's it's very weird. It's like at least they didn't try doing any day for night shots. I hate when they do that. <laughs> at least not that I picked out. <laughs> no, I couldn't see any, but I wouldn't put it past them. But what I did like about that scene where um, Ice T takes out F. Marie Abraham, Burns is just watching. He's watching. For, he could have taken Ice T out at any moment. He was watching yeah. from the shadows, almost as if he was using him for bait just to kill him later on. Or, I mean, this is. I'm glad you brought that up because it's. It it just again it makes Rutger Hauer's character all that more confusing slash interesting. Like why? Obviously, like you could you can make the argument that well, I mean, he's already a serial killer. He already leads a double life, so he's some sort of um, uh, cold, calculating person to have a day job in Seattle or wherever and then kill people on the weekends. But then he's watching someone get murdered and not doing anything, so like, oh, well, you can just chalk it up to him being evil and sadistic and whatever. But it still leaves you the question of like, well, why isn't he doing anything? Why is he watching? And it's kind of like that thing of – He's letting Mason do this to maybe change or to grow or to be a different person. Like, I don't know. Like, the the movie doesn't tell you, so the audience is left to their own devices to figure out, well, how am I supposed to feel? You're not telling me shit. I I guess I'll just make up whatever summary that I feel like. But, yeah, he just watches him like a weird creep in the bush. (laughs) Like a peeping Tom. (laughs) So, I, I don't know. It's very weird i mean it could have added you should have added a few more scenes in the movie to kind of give some context but i you know rutger hauer is going to rutger hauer he's going to do whatever he wants to so and and that's why we show up for this kind of thing is because he he howers it up and speaking of howering it up like i love the switcheroo he does at the towards the end like i'm gonna say like with our i call it the first ending when he gets back to the the camp or back to the cabin or the smoldering ashes is the cabin. They have the two planes there. You have the one plane that looks like it's taking off, but it's spinning in a circle. Yeah, and, dude. And ice T shows up and he fakes them out and he realized that he has set the one plane up to shoot at him from the other, other plane. Phenomenal. What a great fake out. I love that. And I love what he does. The, Forgive me father for I have sinned. And in his eyes, you can see the reflection of the fire of the plane on fire. It's a beautiful shot. I have a little bit more of a constructive paragraph I wrote for that scene. If you'll, if you'll indulge me again, right on, like, go for it. Like it works, but it could have been edited a, a little bit better. And I have no, I have no room to critique. Like who am I? But I just feel like the editing of that airplane explosion and just that scene was just really bad. So, oh, the editing was, was – oh, I will agree that the editing was bad. I just meant the idea was, was phenomenal. No, the idea is great, but it doesn't – they don't really convey it all that well. You kind of have to make – do the math in your head on your own time. But <laughs> like – so like within seconds of footage, we see Mason riding towards the, the airplanes on the ATV, and, and they're driving in motion. Like that, that plane is, is doing circles. And then we <laughs> – we cut to a scene of how of Rucker Hauer in that same plane. They're very distinctly different colors. So he's in the cockpit and he looks to his left, which in the edit is away from where Mason is. So like Rucker's just looking at a pebble in the opposite <laughs> direction. So he's looking at a pine tree. Yeah. So 
Mason does a weird thing that's that's very common in this movie. Apparently, everyone gets off their ATV and then they walk an excessively long distance. They don't continue to drive up to where they need to go. They they park it and then they walk. <laughs> they don't drive anywhere. <laughs> that happens. That's a motif in this movie that plays out a couple of times. I don't it's get it. Weird. Um, so he parks it and then when he's walking, like running to the plane that Rutger was in, it's not moving anymore. And then it's empty. And then we show power who somehow teleported out of the plane and then up on the ridge, fire the bullet (laughs) into the plane. It's just, again, it's absolute dog shit editing. I don't get it. It's just, it's so stupid. And the only good shot of all that is just the the shot of Rucker Howard's face with the flames reflected in his eyes. Other than that, yeah, the editing is pretty. I will say that was one of the coolest shots of the movie. It, it's very different than any of the other scenes, but it looks great. Like that, that uh, shot actually reminded me of um, the devil's advocate. I don't know why, but it's just, you know, the flame and, and everything like the intensity, but no, that was, that was a cool part of that scene. But uh, again, like it's the movie, like shooting itself in the foot, like the character like Rutger Hauer's character, he didn't even check to see if Mason was dead. He just—he didn't even—he just drove off. He just flew away. <laughs> he yeah. didn't—he didn't go over there to do a double tap. He didn't make sure he was dead. <laughs> just left, you know. Yeah, just drove off. Didn't go to check for body parts or to see if he was just wounded or knocked out. Nope. He just like I'm done. I got to go back to work. Oh, uh, and then look when. Uh, Ice T rises from the ashes, kind of like fucking Mad Max rises from the gr- that mound of sand in Fury Road. He's just like a phoenix from the ashes. It's like I'm just gonna dust myself off. And glad I'm still alive. It's a good day to die, I guess. Yeah. Again, that doesn't make any sense. You were exploded <laughs> up, not downward into the ground, and then buried. It's just, it's just. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, just to nitpick again, like, there is no way Mason could have track down where Howard was because apparently he changed his identity to be that priest you know and, and do whatever and then like it, like I we mean, have... they did have the shot that like that you know in the, in the alleyway behind the place when uh burns is making his escape he sees the one of the dirt bikes that was uh left over but did he really make it back from that like several hour trip on you know on a dirt bike? See, that's what I don't that's what I don't understand. So yeah, obviously the dirt bike was there and it was covered in tarp, but like it was three days ago and it just it doesn't detail how Mason escaped and like what he was doing. And then <laughs> it's the same shit of like he's Batman. Like Mason's throwing his voice. He's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And Howard's just carrying his gun in a case wherever he goes as a priest. Like what the what the hell is going on? Like, the I ending didn't is get so the weird. Idea. He was dressing up as a priest, you know, dyeing his hair, dyeing his goatee and his eyebrows and whatnot. But they're showing those long shots of the army outfit that he had laid out. So are we supposed to make, we're supposed to believe that Howard was dressing up as a priest, but that he was also going to be dressing up as an army ranger? Because the movie doesn't tell us. Poor yeah. storytelling. <laughs> we, we don't know. I, I just like in my head, I always thought like maybe Howard had been former military and that he was a ranger. And so I, I'm, you know, they didn't give us any backstory. So damn it, I made up my own backstory. 
there you go. You know, that's all I can say. And we're pretty much at the end of our movie, folks. We get a very quick, I wouldn't say sloppy fight scene between uh, Mason and Burns, but it's not very well choreographed. It's not very well shot in the dark. It is a little bit anticlimactic, but we do get a return for something we had said at the beginning. And what is that, Dan? Uh, make make money and and get bitches. <laughs> no, that was Ice, that was Ice T's album. That was his oh, okay. Uh, something to do with uh, proper gun safety and handling. Yes, always check the fucking barrel. And I I, I love it. It's almost like a good comedian, you know, telling a joke at the beginning of his set, going through the whole gamut of jokes that he has, and bringing that joke around full circle. I do kind of like when they do that. I do have to kind of do the opposite of what I've been doing and not not nitpick. So I actually actually watched that scene uh, two or three times back and forth to see if it made sense. Because, it, again, if you haven't watched the movie, he jams the barrel uh, full of cigarette butts to prevent the bullet from firing as it normally would through the barrel and explode in the receiver, uh, killing uh, Rucker Hauer. Um, number one, it, it might not kill him. It would blow up his hands, but I don't think that would be an immediate death shot. But anyway. Well, nobody I, checks to make sure anybody's dead in this movie. So exactly. for all we know, <laughs> you know, probably know he's just missing, you know, four fingers on his left hand and he's yeah. really still out there trying to catch Rucker Mason. Howard is just screaming in the alley like he just lit off some fireworks in his hand. <laughs> like he closed his hand around a firecracker and was like, let's see what happens. But, um. <laughs> I, I watched that scene a few times because I wanted I was just curious. Was there enough time? Did it show uh, Mason have enough time to put something in the barrel? And I will say, with everything else, this movie kind of went dumb and awful in with their editing. There is an an extra bit of time that Mason had with his back turned to the camera. Obviously, we can't see the gun, but there's a few extra sound effects of him messing with the barrel obviously after he kicks the the bullet out of the um out of the out of the gun chamber 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 yeah sorry not very good with gun lingo but the the effort is there to make it seem like he did have enough time because i know a lot of a lot of movies they just kind of um shoehorn the twist or the surprise at the end of the movie and it does it makes no sense at all like it came out of nowhere so at least the movie had that sense of itself. It, it it kind of showed that yes, within those seconds he could have jammed something in the in the barrel. Whether or not that's that could have worked at all anyway, but yeah. Yep. Yeah, I I, don't, I doubt that it sincerely would have worked. Like you said, it probably would have blown up in his hands and maybe caused some injury. But I don't know if it would have killed him. But then again, we don't know if it kills him because he just walks away and the camera pan, pans with him, and we don't really know. So you know. Old Burns could still be out there looking for Mason to this day, damn it. And I want to point out like a, a really neat thing about this movie that I, I just don't know a lot of people would like would realize unless it's said. In terms of movies that are similar to this, where we have humans hunting humans or the cat and mouse, the killer and the victim, you know, the predator and the prey, Ice T does not kill that many people in this movie. They either take themselves out, they fall to their death. Um, technically, even Gary Busey's character, he, he, you know, 
he could have gotten out of the cabin, maybe. Like, and then like the ending, you know, we don't we don't know if Rutger Howard character Rutger Howard's character dies. The only one we know that you know was murder murdered was John C. McGinley, and then obviously the explosion killed Charles Dutton, and then the fight between F. Murray Abraham. But like, this isn't really like all those other movies like usually the hero is the one who systematically takes out all the people in varying degrees of you know anger and rage and violence but yeah, like kind of, the care where the character pulls a liam neeson and turns into a yeah. killing machine taking out everybody so i think that's another part of this movie that's just very underrated is although he does do some violent things our our protagonist is fairly non-violent through the movie using you know tact and intelligence and trying to outwit them um i think that's a a a pretty neat part of this movie that kind of uh differentiates it from other ones that are in the same kind of genre oh Um, it definitely differentiates uh between this and another one that i've already mentioned before but hard target where Van Damme turns into a killing machine, killing everybody and everything, and you know probably a lot of innocent bystanders along the way, you know. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's, it is it is different because you know I mean like half, like you said half the people are killed by other people, you know. Uh, William McNamara falls to his death. Charles Dutton is essentially just wounded by uh, Ice T. Rick Howard takes him out. Charles yeah, Dutton takes lived. out McGinley. You know, I mean he might have made it. John like, McGinley definitely would have made a, He could have had a sweet wheelchair. He could still ride an ATV. ATVs, you only use your, your thumbs on most of them. <laughs> right, right. He could have been fine. He could have gotten but, some prosthetic legs and gotten along just fine. So, no, I mean, again, it's just weird that it's very one-sided that the bad guys basically take themselves out in, you know, more ways than one. But, but I think that's like uh, an ironic part of it. Is I hear these guys are hunters. They're there to take him out, but they end up taking out each other. So, you know, it's it, eh, it's it's a damn good movie. It's a damn good Rucker Howard performance. Damn good ma- monologue by uh, Gary Busey. Everything about it, even though being a little silly at times and a little weir- weird and editing and musical choices, is still a damn good movie. I agree. I mean, as much we we always kind of pick the the negatives and kind of highlight them a little bit more than positive sometimes, but please don't get me wrong. I love the movie, but I can love it and still <laughs> talk shit about it. <laughs> yeah. The I'm, I'm the same way. Like I talk about, I, it's just like hanging out with a friend. I might talk shit to you, but if I didn't, you know, if I, if I, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't pick on you. You know, if I, if I, if I hated you, I would just ignore you <laughs> as I always exactly. tell people. But that being said, I think we should uh, wrap this one up and go ahead and go into our our final thoughts. And you know how we do things around here. We do a scale from one to ten, one being the worst, ten being the best. So go ahead and have at it, Dan. So, I mean, with as much as we've said, I mean, we've basically talked about the whole movie and uh, the pros and cons of watching it. Now, a lot of this movie is a product of its time. It's really hard for movies – within certain decades to be able to live on past that decade. Like some, some things very date themselves, but this movie doesn't really have that kind of crutch. Obviously this, the city part of the beginning 
and then it transitions into the woods and we don't really have technology we don't have uh, cell phones there's no gps there's no weird kind of intermingling between obvious differences between watching this in 2022 and then you know so none of that kind of takes you out of the movie and it's totally underrated i really feel like this movie is forgotten and isn't really talked about enough and probably because of the things that we've highlighted where it's just questionable and it's easy to make fun of but i (laughs) i I give this movie an eight out of ten and mainly the detractors for this is is the music and the editing other than that it's great <laughs> like i mean the the people that were paid to be in the cast you want to watch the scenes that they're in there's there's no one in this movie other than mcnamara i'm sorry we're just gonna we're just gonna pick on you the entire time you may have done great things later in your career but as wolf jr you you sucked um i mean he did the best with what he was given i mean when it, most of his uh dialogue is dad dad dad, dad. <laughs> but i really do enjoy this movie if, if you haven't watched it please don't be afraid of how old it is i mean it, it it sucks to say that this is an old movie especially i know both you and i have talked a lot about um film in terms of longevity and scale and you know watching stuff from the 30s and 40s are timeless and it doesn't matter how old a movie is if it's in black and white or if it's in four three ratio like you can watch it whenever i really think this movie if you haven't seen it find it it's still streaming it's on prime it's on a a lot of different other things it is worth the watch you will enjoy the movie especially if you've watched some of the cast and their other things this is a there's a reason why we have this under the Rutger Hauer month like it is a very good character vehicle for him and then everybody else turned in a really good performance so I I enjoy this movie and I'm pretty sure you are too oh yeah and uh I'm matching your eight that's exactly what I had written down um I gotta give this at least an eight I would probably venture so far as i say i would almost give it an eight and a half or a nine if it didn't just have some questionable choices um the the music cues which i never really noticed until now i guess i maybe i i hate to say that i didn't pay enough attention but i guess it just went over my head or came in under the rug I, i'm not sure why i never noticed it until you brought it up but like some of the editing you know is a bit wonky but if you're here for a good character driven piece not just by Rucker Howard, but by everybody involved. With again, with the exception of McNamara, he's he's not you know necessarily a horrible actor, but you know every chain has a weakest link, and he is the weakest link. Even the some of the uh, the um, supporting supporting characters like Jeff Corey, who plays uh, Hank, the 
uh, Ice T's old uh, homeless friend, Bob Miner, who plays a security guard who popped up in Action Jackson and a bunch of other stuff in the 80s and 90s. The old guy who played the the hotel clerk, which I didn't write his name down, but he's a good character actor. Everybody, you know, it doesn't just feel like uh, a job. It feels like they showed up and they gave it their all. They really do well. Charles Dutton does a really great turn as a as a villain. It's a, a different kind of turn for him. Gary Busey manages to steal the entire movie and so that you walk away from it going, oh, yeah, Gary Busey's monologue. That's the thing you walk away from this movie with. But Rucker Howard is great. He is the king of subtlety. All the little things he does from – Praying with his hands to, you know, playing with a, uh, you know, the 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 nail clippers, the the apple, the butterfly, just the way he he little nuances he has with things, the Altoids, everything, he brings it. John C. McGin- McGinley, this is one of the first roles I remember seeing him in, and I've loved him ever since. I loved him in Scrubs. He's great. And overall, just it, this is a performance-driven movie, and we've already said that many times, but you show up for the actors that are in this, and if you do, you're not going to be disappointed. And like I said, it is on Prime, it's on Voodoo, it's on a couple other services. I think you can rent it for $1.99 or $2.99, relatively cheap. You can buy a digital copy of it for $5.99. You know, so for the price of uh, a gallon of gas these days, <laughs> or a latte, you can own this movie. And I... I will go out on a limb here and say, folks, if you do do that, you will not be disappointed. At least I don't think so. No, I agree. And not to show any kind of shade, but this is one of those movies that you could usually find at a Walmart discount bin or the dollar store or somewhere that sells DVDs. Like I'm sure this movie would be there just because of where it is on the tier system and how old it is. But it, it, that does not take away from at least how entertaining it is. And that's the whole point of having a movie or a film. Like, does it entertain? Does it capture? Does it take you away from the monotony of the world? Like, it it does that. So this is definitely uh, going on the board of good, good movies. Yeah, and as you something you touched on earlier, is this a shame for a movie that's almost thirty years old? And other than having a cult following with guys like us, it, it's genuinely, genuinely, um, and generally, I guess, genuinely and generally, uh, forgotten about. And it's a shame, you know. It's a, uh, I think it's a top tier movie, and the fact that. It only made a three hundred thousand dollars stateside uh, pro- profit is just sad. It's uh, I, I, w- I want to beat everybody over the head back in nineteen ninety four and tell them go see this movie and make it a make it a, a bigger hit. It, it deserves to be a bigger hit. But they were too busy watching The Lion King <laughs> and Forrest Gump. That's that's what they were doing. Yeah, they were they were flocking to go see Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura: Pet Detective. You know. <laughs> Seeing a guy talk with his ass cheeks as opposed to going seeing this cinematic. <laughs> they, they they were going to see excuse me as opposed to seeing this. I don't know what the not that I'm knocking uh, Ace Ventura because I I think the movie's hilarious, but just you know, if for eh. context, it's hilarious. But yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I think we'll put a pin in this one for the evening. I really want to thank you for being the the first guest for Rooker Howard Appreciation Month. I'm glad we you kind of picked this one. Because, uh, you know, out of the ones we had left, there was a couple of them that I was rooting for. I like to let people, I usually pick a, a general array of movies and let my co-hosts and friends pick what they want. And I was really like, 
I was bet- betting hard that somebody would have picked this, so I'm glad you did. This has uh, always been one of my favorites. No, I appreciate it greatly. I, I like talking to you in general, but when we we have some sort of common ground to really like dissect a movie that we both really enjoy, um, it's really fun. And I like the ones where like I've either never seen them or um, I'm I'm ignorant to a lot of other genres or um, just different movies that you're fascinated with. So no, I like jumping on those kind of different situations but with with this one as soon as you gave me that list i was like i want that one so (laughs) i'm very very happy that this um this came to be i was fortunate enough to be on this episode well thank you sir i appreciate it and i always like talking with you too even if it's not uh, on the show you know but when we have uh as you put it a you know a good good chance to share some common ground on a flick like this especially so it's nice to know somebody else still likes this movie almost 30 years later but that being said, um, folks, we'll bid you a fond farewell for the evening. You've been li- listening to the ultimately the first episode in our Rucker Hauer Appreciation Month, and we have been reviewing and dissecting and tearing apart the musical musical integrity <laughs> of one surviving the game from 1994. As always, folks, thanks for listening. And Thank always, you, everybody. Remember, always, always check the barrel. He was on me. He was on me like flies on shit. I had no chance. I got my arm up between his teeth and my neck. Whomp! Went down in the mud. Rolled over. Rolled over. That dog is fighting and biting and scratching and kicking. And I'm screaming and crying. I'm grabbing him around the head. I stand up. Fall with my weight on it. Here's neck break. He's dead. You're not breathing. He's not yelping, he's not biting. I'm covered with blood. I stand up, I wipe the blood off. I lick it. My dad says, welcome to manhood. <laughs>